Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Catherine, tell us about today's case. This is going to be about the situation that happened 2009, a shooting in uh, Washington, D.C. at the U.S. Holocaust Museum, the Memorial Museum. It's a tough one in its own way. Now, this one is a bit different because I, now I was going to say there's only, only one victim, but you know, obviously one victim is too many. But the other cases that we've talked about have been mass shooting incidents, but this one isn't. So why are we talking about this case in particular? I thought this was an important case to talk about because this type of shooting is every traveler's nightmare. Washington, D.C., as you can imagine, is a massive tourist city, and there are thousands and thousands of people here all spring, all summer, all fall, popular tourist attraction, and suddenly the sound of gunshots. Yeah, that's absolutely horrifying. You know, I've taken a class of school children to the museum on a field trip, so I'm all ears for this one. So how does this particular nightmare begin? Well, it was a Wednesday afternoon, about 1 p.m. on June 10th, 2009. An 88-year-old man drove his car up in front of the U.S. Holocaust Museum in downtown Washington, D.C. He double-parked the car, his little red Hyundai, on a busy commuter street and exited the car on the side opposite the museum. He walked around the back of his car and towards the museum entrance, which was just a short sidewalk away. As he stepped up onto the curb, one of the three security officers who was working inside that entrance, 39-year-old special police officer Joseph Tyrone Johns, stepped towards the door. And as Johns reached forward and swung the door open to greet him, as he was very well known to do, anybody who worked with him knew that he did that with visitors, the shooter raised a 22 caliber Winchester rifle and shot him point blank. The other two security guards who were working with Officer Johns at the front security area just immediately drew their weapons, fired on the killer, shooting him in the neck and really ending the firefight. So the whole thing was over in less than two minutes. Something that we see happen in many shootings, right? Although many more are, are more lethal. So the officer and the killer were both transported to the same hospital. Uh, the officer died that day, but the killer did not. And no one else at the museum besides the other two security guards were fired upon. That's such a tragic outcome. I want to touch on one of the things that jumps out about this incident to me, and that's the age of the killer. 89 years old. I mean, what the actual 
It's seriously, is is that something that you've seen before in the active shooter cases you've researched? Uh, actually, no. He was 88 when the shooting and 89 a couple weeks after the shooting. This is definitely the oldest shooter that I've dealt with in this type of shooting. It's not unheard of. Most shooters are in their 30s and 40s. Some people think they're, oh, they're young kids in their 20s, but most shooters are in their 30s and 40s. And that's really because most shootings that are mass shootings, active shooter situations occur in places of business, about half of them. So that's why we see that kind of demographic. So 89, pretty old. Although we have seen shooters as young as junior high school students. Imagine uh, 12 and 13 year olds who come to school with shotguns. We've seen that. So you said that you've dealt with it. Were you actually at the Holocaust Museum when this happened? No, I wasn't there when the shooting occurred, thankfully. But I was working at the FBI's operational office in Washington, D.C. And when the shooting occurred, I was part of the many who supported the response. So I was out there actually uh, the next day while our evidence recovery teams were still pulling surveillance and retracing the trajectory of all of the bullets that had been fired. Because remember, we had a live shooter and we were planning on potentially criminal charges for the death of the officer. So really my task at that time was to coordinate this overwhelming mob of national and international press that were choking the area out, as you can imagine, and to hold a press conference the next day. So if you think, okay, this shooting was at the Holocaust Museum, we were at the FBI incredibly concerned about the safety of all those people who were going to be stepping up. The mayor of Washington, D.C., other dignitaries, FBI officials, and somebody in the mayor's office uh, had made some decision before we got there to drop a wooden podium on the grass lawn outside of the museum. So really, our concern uh, was to get our people safely in and out of this mob of reporters that were not just uh, U.S. news reporters. International media had shown up. The concern that we had was that there would be white sympathizers, white supremacist sympathizers, or other anti-Semitic sympathizers who might come and decide that they had an opportunity to take out the mayor and some of the other people who were there. So it was kind of a frightening momentary couple hours, but thankfully it occurred safely. The press conference was safe. They didn't actually try and make your job any easier putting that podium on the grass. You know, not surprisingly, the FBI has locations and the D.C. Uh, City Hall is, is not too far away from the FBI's operational office. And it would have been much better to have it there. I think that was somebody mm. not, not thinking at the time about the risk to their own mayor. And, but say uh, la vie. You mentioned white supremacist and anti-Semitic sympathizers. Can we say that this was a racially motivated hate crime? And what is the correct terminology for this kind of incident? Well, I think uh, generically, absolutely. You know, I'm a lawyer, right, former prosecutor. So I always think in terms of what is the legal term for it and how do we legally prove something and, and especially being an agent, trying to put those pieces together. But when you think of what generically you think of as a hate crime, absolutely. He was an admitted white supremacist. We knew almost immediately because he had a prior history of a lot of kind of racially motivated activities in his background. And so nowadays we hear the term domestic terrorism. That's really a good term to use, but not a term that we were necessarily using at that time because we were focused more on terrorism we viewed as more of an international incident. Today, we would call this a domestic terrorist act. But, you know, we don't have a crime. Many other countries have crimes that define terrorism charges, including terrorism by their own population. Congress here, we have not in the U.S. Congress has not created a crime called domestic terrorism. So in theory, yes, but on charges, that's not what we'll, we would charge them with. That sounds like a political issue that we aren't solving today. <laughs> so 
Let me change course. Why the Holocaust Museum in particular on that day? Well, it's hard to say for sure. As we learned about the shooter, we certainly know it was not a surprise that he ended up there, right? But he had been around town for a few days. He didn't actually hail from too far away, came from the next state over Maryland. And I mean, if you appreciate his background, you can see how he ended up there. But he didn't write something specifically to say, this is what I'm going to do and this is why I'm going to do it. And as occurs, sometimes we don't get an answer as to why somebody chose a particular target. Just for context and geography, he didn't live in Washington at all. Like He had to actually physically drive quite a distance to get to the museum. Uh, correct. Passing but targets it, along the way, I'm imagining. He did, exactly. And, and, right. and there were other places that, you know, we know he drove around and he had addresses for other places. He came from Maryland, as I mentioned, which really it can be a commuter drive. But he didn't have any reason to come into Washington other than to do this. So very targeted. Here in London, if you're planning to go on a museum trip, you get there really early to beat the queues of tourists because they get so busy. So how many people were in the Holocaust Museum when the shooting started? You said it was like one o'clock in the afternoon. Is that right? Right, right. So it was packed. Mm. And, you know, I think that's another reason why I picked this particular case. The reason that this podcast is important, the book that I'm worked on is so important, is to help the public out. And I picked this particular incident because I feel like, just like you said, uh, Sarah, you've taken school children to the museum. That's exactly what happens all over Washington, D.C. for six months out of the year. So in this case, there were thousands of people at the museum. It's a huge museum. So about 7,000 people visit the museum every day. And that's how big the museum is. I mean, not as big as the Louvre and some others, but I'm saying it's a big museum in Washington. And I know that after the shooting occurred, that number jumped to about 8,000 a day. And I really kind of thought that was a kind of a solidarity. You know, people were saying, no one's going to take our museums away from us. Nobody's going to take our freedom. But the museum was packed with school children and, uh, and wow. others. That whole show of solidarity, oftentimes when we see the worst in humanity, it gives the space for the best of humanity to come through as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the things that anybody who's listening can recognize and realize is that they could have been there. And I would say to the people who are listening, you know, ask yourself, honestly, if you heard gunshots and you were in a museum with a bunch of kids or by yourself or with your spouse or with your friends, would you know what to do? You know? No, thankfully (laughs) I've got you to clue me up though. And I'm learning as now we're a few episodes in, I suspect I know what you're going to say. So tell me, what should I do? Well, I know I sound like a broken record, but think about the fact that even if you're on holiday, you are busy walking around in some places you don't know. Keep your eyes up, get them off of your phone, Look at where you can go to if you do have a problem. You know, we should all be doing that anyway. We should be aware of exits in case of fire, for instance. We want to make sure that people take care of themselves when they're out and about. Look at your exits when you're in the museum. Please, please, please look around where you can escape. I think people forget that when they're on holiday, right? Oh, it's so true. It's so true. I know that I've been on the beach on holidays recently. And one of the things that struck me when I was sitting on that beach was it came to mind that there was the Tunisian beach terrorist attack. But, you know, as I look around, I realized actually how vulnerable we would be sitting there on that beach. Do you know the incident that I'm talking about? That happened when I was in charge of the FBI's active shooter program, and we sent a whole team over there to train their beach police because of that. They were very concerned that people would stop coming to Tunisia to vacation because they would be afraid of what would happen on the beach. So we sent a whole team over there to teach their beach patrol what to look for. In that museum, 7,000 people coming and going, what stopped there being more victims? Really, you know, the museum coordination from the very beginning, when the museum was opened in 1993, they took 
security very seriously right from the start. It was an understanding that anti-Semitism and the related violence that might come with it could really happen at any time in a museum about the Holocaust. It was really kind of a worldwide concern, and it is a place that uh, people that travel from all over the world. So visitors had, even at that time, and still have to go through magnetometers at both entrances. There's a front and there's a back entrance, and they're managed by well-trained officers. And I think that's what we saw here was a success. A well-trained team who, even though they lost one of their own, knew exactly how to protect everybody behind them. Well, I'm so glad that they had those security fire breaks in place, but it's just a sad reflection on the state of the world, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think, though, that's an accurate statement. It's a reflection of where we are right now in the world. And that challenge about hate is out there and different voices have been bolstering hate and hate begets hate crimes. So this killer, he shot one person, but clearly his intention was to do a lot more harm than that. So what do you charge a person that's actually only committed one murder, but clearly had intent to do more harm? Well, we can't charge him with domestic terrorism because we don't have a federal statute for that, right? And we didn't then, we don't now. So I'll say seven weeks later, after the shootings, a federal grand jury returned a seven-count indictment against this still-hospitalized shooter, charging him with federal murder, federal hate crimes, federal gun crimes. And then as well as is allowed in the U.S. courts, local charges, which would be separate crimes allowed under the District of Columbia, which would be also murder, civil rights, and hate crimes, and then firearms violations. So kind of parallel charges, both at the federal and the state level, something that's allowed here. The risk to the Pack Museum was part of the reason for the charges. He really faced a maximum sentence of life in prison, and four of the counts were what we would call death penalty eligible charges, meaning that in any court action, criminal court action, the sentencing phase is separate. So death penalty eligibility comes up. If somebody's convicted, then there's a hearing on whether or not the person go for a death penalty. Wow, your system seems very complicated with the federal <laughs> and the state. So just to clarify, am I right in guessing a federal murder charge is for a murder committed on federal soil? Well, a lot of Washington, D.C. is federal. And it's a federal crime because he was a federal employee, a federal officer. Oh. And so that made it a federal crime, but crimes that occur on federal property are federal crimes, and so they can be charged there. You hear federal and state charges. We always have the option to charge both, and I think that the prosecutor's offices on both sides work together to figure out what are the best charges to file. The reason that we might charge federal and state, say we charge federal murder and we charge state murder, the reason we do that in the United States is because if there was a fatal error in the prosecution of the federal murder charge and that murder charge was uh, kicked out by a judge or there was a evidentiary issue, then the state murder charge would still potentially stand. So we try to charge them uh, in federal and state if it's appropriate to ensure that if there's a challenge legally to some type of the conviction, the prosecution can go through either way. So a lot, like of, a lot of legal gobbledygook, sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. I've got another legal gobbledygook question for you coming right up. I mean, we talked about life sentences. Now, life sentences are different in every country. Like I know that, for example, New Zealand, it feels pitiful. It's 10 years before you're eligible for parole. UK, I think it's 15 to 20 years. What's the US definition of life sentence? Life sentence in federal court is life sentence. So Your whole life? Yeah. yeah. The US sentencing uh, guidelines are very complex. So it's really interesting, though, how different the justice systems are. So this killer, he's been charged with a plethora of crimes. Were they able to prove all the charges in court? Well, no, they didn't have a chance because six months after the shooting, the killer died from his injuries. 
I read on Wikipedia that the FBI stated that they had been monitoring the killer's internet postings. I can see you smirking at me because I said Wikipedia. But, you know, the FBI were unable to take any action because his comments had not crossed the line from free speech to illegal threats or incitement. So is that true? Yeah, Wikipedia. It's a curse <laughs> and a blessing, isn't it, for all of us? <laughs> it, you know, there's a lot of information that's there. It's great. I love the the footnotes in there. And, and you can go back to the original source, which is fantastic. And you are right. You know, as far as there was some comments about what the FBI was monitoring or not, I think monitoring is not the word the FBI would uh, use in the same way that you might think of it. It's a good conversation for really for us to have to explain the difference between kind of hate speech and hate crime. Hate speech is the former, right, is absolutely protected speech in the United States. Hate crimes or not. So uh, this is likely uh, dramatically different than laws in uh, some of the countries where our listeners are. Uh, many countries, including your own, have crimes associated with hate speech, whether it's targeting religion or sexual orientation, national origin, race, even you know physical or mental disabilities. In the United States, speech has a much different and much more protected status. Can you elaborate on when the hate speech crosses that line? It really crosses the line in kind of two buckets. One, uh, when the speech turns to criminal action. So if you are saying things and then you're talking to somebody and the words are terrible, but then it turns into physical altercation, you know, it's a crime. The second bucket is really when your language incite others to act. Now, that's a little trickier, right? The first is so easy to understand. You know, recently we had a, a white woman from the state of Iowa drive her car on a sidewalk and two separate incidents, you know, purposefully hitting a 12-year-old black child and then going down the road and hitting a 14-year-old girl she believed was Mexican. So it's just outrageous. Were the children okay? They were injured, but they're okay. And we know that she targeted them because she told the police, I hit him because he was black. I hit her because she was Mexican. So hate speech protected hate action, a crime. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game, or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets... 
Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. So the second possibility is really when somebody directs somebody and it's imminent, something that's going to happen right at that moment. So if you're standing up with a group and you stir them up with hate speech and tell them to go do something, you know, then you're, then we're cooking with gas. It can't just be somebody who's just jawing about how the world is wrong and things aren't going well. It has to be something that appears to have incited someone or more than one person to act legally that what we would call that the proximate cause for it. It sounds like something I witnessed in the US back in January. Is that an illustration of how close to the wire you can sail with freedom of speech in the US? Well, I am certainly not going to comment on anything <laughs> that happened in the United States in January. But I will <laughs> say that, the that bus, I apologize. That's okay. No, that's okay. You know, I think that though you you do see it, it is a we are talking about a line that is a murky line, and really then they end up in court. That's the challenge, right? That's the challenge. Yeah. Well done swerving that political pothole. So back to this episode, Scumbag. There were reports that his internet was being monitored because of the content. So why didn't that prompt a visit from law enforcement? A lot of times you you do see a law enforcement, uh, if they uh, get wind of someone, they see something on their own, they get a tip from somebody who says this person is doing this. As I said, you know, words are words, right? And one of the things about words is that's all they are. So even on the internet, if law enforcement stopped in, they would say, hey, we hear you're looking at sites and reading hate speech. Well, there's not a crime. So free reign on hate then. Yeah. You know, if it's just words. So that makes me say, hey, you know, check your kids and your spouse's web browser histories and don't encourage others to engage in it. Hate speech is likely to escalate. Really? When you say likely to escalate, is there research showing that it's a predictor of future violent behavior? I think there is certainly research, not unlike what we see in domestic violence, where you have this kind of action, it goes unchecked, then it emboldens the person to raise the level of the type of violence that they might engage in. And so domestic violence can start out as twisting somebody's wrist and end up with somebody, you know, being murdered, right? So, you know, it may take a month, it may take 10 years, it may take 20 years. In this kind of situation, hate speech incites. We have hundreds of people who've been charged in the January assault on the Capitol here, and many of them have said in their own defense, you know, they were just there to listen and they were just walking through and they didn't mean any harm because they don't necessarily maybe appreciate what they did by entering the Capitol illegally was an escalation. I think maybe some of them didn't think it through. Just so it's clear, the FBI, just like anybody who's law enforcement, we're really bound by very strict limitations on monitoring social media. There isn't any way to just monitor private citizens' emails from a government standpoint. I can't say what private industry does, but the U.S. Constitution, the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights has 45 words. And really the most important and relevant words are Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion and prohibiting the free exercise or thereof or bridging the free freedom of speech. So really, those are two different protections, freedom of religion and the freedom to exercise your speech. And you may say, why did you bring up religion? But I can tell you, I've worked white supremacist cases for the FBI where the white supremacists say they have a First Amendment religious protection 
on what they do because they believe that their religion is that they are white. That is their religion. That is shocking. It's kind of a challenge. So that's part of what we deal with when we talk about can you stop somebody who did what this shooter did in coming to the Holocaust Museum, taking his hate speech and turning it into action. He turned his hate speech into hate crimes, but stopping him at the hate speech spot, there isn't a mechanism to do that here in the United States. So I'm hearing that the FBI can't do anything about hate speeches at all. No, what we do is, you know, we count on citizens to tell us when they think that's going to escalate. And we count on the work that we do, the law enforcement, who really has the closest ear to the ground, for them to be aware of their sources and uh, see whether or not somebody's going to turn their anger into a crime. Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. So Catherine, what struck you about this particular incident as the most significant piece of information that needed to be shared with the public on that? I think that the tourist aspect of it is the thing that I just want everybody to appreciate. I think when people are traveling as tourists, they really let their guard down. I've done it myself. They're out of their own element. They never think they're going to be in the middle of anything bad, but they also have zero awareness about the resources available to them. People on the National Mall, you can't hardly find a bathroom on the National Mall, let alone a place where you know you can hide. So you've got to kind of know where to go. And in this case, you know, even though the officer who was killed was being friendly, literally opening the door to the killer, he's trying to be friendly to tourists and, you know, he paid for it with his life. But tourists weren't looking up either. You know, I mean, that guy got out of a car with a shotgun in his hand. So do you think that the age of the victim and our conditioning to always respect the elderly impacted the situation? I don't think that you have to have been a security guard to imagine yourself seeing an elderly gentleman you know, walking up to the door. You know, instinctively, you'd probably reach out and help. Am I in the minority there? I think you're spot on. I mean, I would do it. I do it myself, right? You know, the guard was carrying a weapon himself. There were revolving doors that most of the tourists came through. And this guard opened that door up likely because this was an elderly gentleman who got out of the car and started approaching the door. And he just thought maybe it was easier than this guy going through the revolving door. He was just being kind. So can you clarify that the killer didn't go through the main entrance or walk towards it even? You know, he double parked his car at the curb in front of the museum, maybe an eight foot sidewalk to the revolving doors. But the door that Officer Johns opened was just to the right of him. So as he got out of his car, could have taken three paces and gotten to the revolving doors. Instead, he took three paces and went to the door next to it. 
So I'm really hearing there's a lesson about security in this one. You know, it it is. And I'm not second guessing what these officers did. And I'm confident they saved lives. But I will say it's a lesson to security who are out there now. It's really a sad reminder that security just has to focus on security. So, you know, don't be put off when some security officer seems so serious. You know, you want to chat with them. Don't do that. You want them to be serious about their job. That's a really great point. I know when I go to Buckingham Palace or something, those guards are standing there and they're famous for not flinching and not moving. But there's always, you know, surrounded with tourists just trying to make them flinch. And really, we just need to step back and let them concentrate on what they're doing. And that's keeping us safe. Spot on. Well, for those of you that are new to the show, each episode, we take a look at the killer's background because you can actually all play a part in preventing these mass shootings from happening and becoming the next headline. But you need to know what to look for. Isn't that right, Catherine? Absolutely. I think we want you to have an awareness of what we call behaviors of concern. What are the things that you might see? And I'll tell you the reason why I'm so confident you can see them. Anybody who commits an act of targeted violence moves on a pathway, a kind of a predictable, projective pathway, where they start with this idea they want to commit violence, and then they plan for it, and they prepare for it before they act. That planning and preparation are behaviors that you can see, we can see, we can hear. And those kinds of actions are our best ways, what some people call red flags or things to look for to know whether or not somebody might be intending to commit a violent act. And and some of them are obvious, more obvious, like amassing weapons. And some are less obvious, like a person who maybe gives away all their possessions. So it's time to exercise those see something and say something muscles because it doesn't come naturally. And not everyone is a curtain twitching neighbor with the police on speed dial. But (laughs) if we all want to play our part in prevention, we best get those curtains twitching. As a matter of fact, I've got an illustration for you, Catherine, of how I've been exercising those muscles. I actually called the police tip line this week. You'd be very, very proud of me because I was channeling my inner see something, say something. I mean, I would say that it was reporting a door-to-door scammer and not anything near as serious as preventing a mass shooting. No, it all counts. So tell us more. We get these scammers come to our door regularly and you know, they try and sell one pound pieces of crap for 10 pounds. And and the whole point <laughs> is that they're targeting the, the elderly and vulnerable and also casing the joint for burglaries, it's been proven. So yeah, I just picked up my phone afterwards and thought, right, I'm going to actually do something because I know that I can say no to them. I can send them away from my door, but my elderly neighbors might not be able to. And uh, yeah, so I felt like, yeah, I'm bit of the old community spirit going on there. And you. it only happened because of the conversations that we'd had. You know, it really does help to practice the old see something, say something muscles. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm so happy to hear that. You know, sometimes when people ask me about, you know, but the police will see, I say there are, are uh, less than a million police officials in the United States and there are 440 million people. So you can't expect the police to see everything. Yeah, That's why it's so important to see something, say something. That's exactly what we wanted to have happen. Look at you. You're learning. You're blossoming. I feel happy. I am. I'm growing into a real community (laughs) citizen. So Catherine, what can you tell us about the Holocaust Museum killer in particular? I'm going to get my pen ready. Okay, so definitely think about whether or not there are some good signs here and whether or not you would have reported them. That's what I would say, because sometimes you think you would, sometimes you wouldn't. So what in here might fit in? So this shooter, who was white, had a long history of hate before he shot and killed Officer Johns, who happened to be black. 
He lived in Maryland, uh, 33 miles away from the museum. But let's look back at his history. He was a college graduate. He played varsity football. His bachelor's degree was in journalism. He was a decorated World War II veteran. He served in the U.S. Navy. He was in our Pacific Theater as a PT boat captain. He was decorated for that. He successfully worked in New York City as an advertising man for 20 years. And he even tested for Mensa and was in Mensa for a year, showing he was pretty smart. So in the 1960s, because remember, he is a lot older than who we often hear. In the 1960s, he settled in Maryland, which is near Washington, and he had some skirmishes with police. He had DUI. He was charged and actually jailed for a while for fighting with a sheriff. He worked briefly for a Holocaust-denying publication. Remember, he had a journalism degree. So he worked for a Holocaust-denying publication, and he had plenty of opinions about how he had been wronged through the years in his life, in his career. Remember now, the internet was just getting started, right? So paper was the king back then. And so fast forward as the internet became more and more active, he was a little more active himself. In fact, in 1980, he spent six and a half years in federal prison for taking a revolver, a shotgun, and a knife to the U.S. Federal Reserve Building. That's the group that manages U.S. monetary systems. In an attempt to kidnap and hold hostage the board members who were in a meeting, he reportedly was angry about the high interest rates in the United States. And so he was going to do a citizen's arrest and take care of that matter. It's an extreme reaction to high interest rates. Yes. In that instance, a security officer was able to disarm him. Released from prison, he moved for a short time to the state of Idaho, which is in a particular area, which is kind of significant only for the fact that it was the one-time home of the leader of the Aryan Nation, which is, of course, a neo-Nazi hate group. He moved back to Maryland, outside of D.C. He was uh, vocal about his hatred and anger towards the United States. This was very espoused on his internet sites and to people around him. He thought the Jews in the United States had put this black man into the White House. And one of his neighbors after this incident occurred uh, told ABC News he was like a pressure cooker waiting to go off. Another neighbor said that the shooter believed that his federal benefits had been cut back because they had been reading his website. And so they decided to cut back on his federal benefits. We also have, not to be undone, indications he was a member of the American Friends of the British National Party, a group at the time that was raising funds in the United States for the BNP, which I believe is a, you know, rights for whites, uh, far right uh, organization. So before the shooting, he gave control of his hate-inspired website to another person. He gave away his computer. After the shooting, we found a notebook in his car that listed other locations in town that the media believed that there was a hit list. But I can tell you, I personally looked at that notebook. There was no hit list in it. But this idea that maybe he was targeting other places, but he did have derogatory statements about Jews and the effectiveness of the First Amendment. So at the time of the shooting, he was living, my last detail, he was living with his son and the woman that his son was engaged to. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of information there. I feel like you've padded <laughs> it out with stuff that's going to be red herrings as well as red flags. So, there are so some. <laughs> have you, have you done that to me? I, I, I would never do that to you, Sarah. I trust you implicitly. <laughs> right. Well, so here are the things that I kind of like that have jumped out at me. He was clearly intelligent. And I'm wondering if that led him to have this misplaced sense of entitlement when things weren't going his way. Like possibly he had a problem with authority and or alcohol. 
he had that DUI and then he had an altercation with the sheriff back in the day. Mm -hmm. The fact that he worked for a Holocaust denying publication, massive red flag. But would I have thought that was reportable? I think I would have assumed that because it's published that the authorities would already have eyes on it. So would that be a correct assumption or should I have reported that? No, I wouldn't. We wouldn't necessarily think that the authorities had eyes on it. Uh, we don't monitor everything on the internet. There's no way to do that. It's physically impossible. So reporting it and saying, boy, this is really a lot of hate speech is perfectly fine to report. But whether or not we are able to act on it in terms of a criminal investigation is different. But if we identified some site that there is a tremendous amount of hate speech on, and it appears that there are people who are commenting on it, and they're trying to incite. Most people who commit targeted violence telegraph that to other people. And sometimes it occurs on those kinds of sites. So we're happy to get the call about a site. Right. And like we say, it could be the last piece of the puzzle that they need to take action. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that kind of stuck out to me was that he always seems to be looking for someone to blame, like Federal Reserve for hiking the interest rates. And he was also open to conspiracy theories. To be honest, he just seems like a really hateful man always looking for someone to blame for what he perceives as wrongs against him. And maybe, I don't know, does that link back to his entitlement chip a little bit? Because he was intelligent. So did he think that he deserved a better life than he'd created for himself? Not sure. sure. I mean, that makes sense, right? Yeah. So of those things, I probably would have only reported the hateful publications, but what am I so missing? Because Well, because that's like... what you would have seen. So who else would have seen other things? Oh, oh yes, I did make it. Look, I've even got it written down in big, large on the post-it that he gave away his computer before he left. So that would be something that, who did he give the computer away to? Right. It's one thing if he turns his website over to somebody else with some excuse, right? But he yeah. gave away his computer. That's pretty bad indication. He had those weapons he carried in and out of the house. We don't know who might have seen those. You know, who else he might have threatened, where else he might have been. He was traveling around that day. So if somebody had seen him in a car and they had seen a weapon in his car, anytime we see a weapon in a car, we would like a call. Giving away the website, the hateful website, he's giving that to another hateful person by definition, right? So sure. that person's clearly not going to be putting their hand up. No, right? that's true. You know, I don't think it's that cut and clear. And I can tell you that here in the state of Michigan, there were charges filed uh, against uh, several individuals who threatened to kidnap and potentially, you know, harm the governor of the state of Michigan. And that was done by people who what we would kind of probably call domestic terrorists here, obviously. But the tip for that uh, initially came, is my understanding, from a member of the militia, somebody who heard that even though they have their positions on what they believe the government should or shouldn't do, they felt that this was a crossover into an area that was inappropriate and uh, a risk to the governor and the governor's family, and they called. So I think that people, even though they're engaged in hate speak, it doesn't mean that they intend to harm. And I know that's hard for people to hear, but I think that's the truth. Uh, there's a lot of people who hate a lot of people and a lot of things and a lot of ideas, but it doesn't mean they're going to commit a crime. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become 
Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe, and then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. So why did you tell me all those details about his service in the Navy, like his work and his college football career? Was that just red hearing stuff? Well, you know, I think this co- kind of falls to me to to say to you, you know, it's so easy to say he would never do that. He's a good guy. He's a good father. I hear that all the time. He's a great neighbor. He's a good guy. He was my roommate in college. You know, he's never done anything like that. He would never do anything like that. He's the nicest person. You know, he he took my kid to school every day for me. Well, okay, that's great. He's successful at his job. That's great. We're not looking at the good parts. We're looking at the bad parts. And so we hear all the time, you know, oh, he's just a big talker. Yeah, well, sometimes people do these really bad things. I can't tell you how many times I've heard he was a nice guy, kept to himself. I never thought he would do this. He's never done anything like that. Well, yeah, that's what everybody says after a murder. Don't just look at the appearance. Because they can be deceiving, can't they? So in this case, Catherine, what sticks out to you the most in his background as being a behavior of concern? I think that he's what we would call a grievance collector. I think you touched on it before, and I would refer to it as a grievance collector. He had family and friends who clearly for his entire life witnessed him in this longstanding, everybody's doing him wrong, the Federal Reserve, the government, the law enforcement. I'm sure that he had battles with his neighbors, with people he worked with. Others saw it. Others saw it. He had his son. His son spoke at a press conference the day after. He said, oh, I I couldn't believe somebody who was nearly 90 would do this. And then they interviewed his ex-wife and she said, yeah, he hated Jews. So people do these kinds of things. Friends and family live in the entire world of disbelief. That's when we have something like this happen. So let's wrap up with our two final questions. The first is, what are the hard lessons that we learned from the Holocaust Museum shooting? I think for me, especially having carried a gun for my career as an FBI agent, security officers have to be alert. They have to be on guard all the time. This guard was killed because he was friendly. I think that's pretty much what all of us felt at the time. He was known for talking to the visitors and opening the door for somebody who might have had trouble getting in or out. But, you know, he lost his life. He was married. He had two kids. And he lost his life because of his good nature. So don't ask the security officers to not do their job. And for security, you know, their job is to see what other people don't see so they can enjoy the museums they go to. So the second question, what are the moments of incredible humanity, the moments of resilience or courage or bravery that we saw at the Holocaust Museum that day? I think in this case, my shout out would go to all the people inside the museum, the museum staff that managed the incident, 
that had a plan in place to deal with this kind of mass panic, right? There's only a, essentially, you know, a handful of guards compared to, and security people and, and staff compared to the thousands inside, right? There, but there were teachers with dozens of kids, tourists who had to explain what was going on to their own children who were there looking at a museum about massacres, right? Above all, I think the museum team really knew something like this could happen. They had a plan in place. And imagine just, I know one of the examples that I remember uh, at the time was there was a middle school school event uh, going on there. And, and so there were coordinators there with 165 eighth graders, and they had to kind of find a way to find all their 165 eighth graders account for them and make them safe. And I think that's an example of times how many of must have, have, have occurred inside the museum. And that was well-coordinated. Wow. Definitely deserves a shout out to them. Like I said, I've been on those kind of school trips and as a parent helper, it's like herding cats. So stressful. So well done to them. Finally, I like the idea that from each of the cases that we look at, Catherine, you're going to give us a practical lesson that we can take away and put into everyday lives to practice. Something that might one day mean we've got the tools to help prevent another Holocaust museum shooting. What would that message be today? So if you're security, uh, don't be afraid to do your job. If you're a member of the public, stay alert in the same way that you would where you don't cross the street, you know, without looking both ways. Look for the exits, listen to people who are under stress, and always, 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 if you see something, say something. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories or Twitter at STK Podcast. Come and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. All the links are in the show notes. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect be ready for it if you've enjoyed stop the killing check out more podcasts from community podcast productions like this one let me 
introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. (laughs) We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. (laughs) Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. It's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.